today we come to what has been described as the, uh, the most feared, misunderstood, and neglected of all the spiritual disciplines, and that is fasting. Uh, I can hear a kind of sense of heaviness already. There's going to be no biscuits served after the... <laughs> They're all wrapped up in a box, but I don't want you touching them today. Uh, For anyone who is visiting or or new to Windsor, we as a church family, as Sarah said at the beginning, are currently looking at the importance of spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, kind of those practices that have been given to us, that have been handed down to us, that that are there to kind of facilitate and feed and fuel our growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so far in this series, and we've called this series Unforced Rhythms, And so far in this series, we've looked at 10 disciplines. Here's the list. So we've looked at worship and Sabbath and examine and unplugging and silence and solitude. We looked at those together, but they could be considered individual disciplines. Simplicity, Ivan Steen from Windsor Presbyterian looked at that with us. Then last Sunday morning, the spiritual discipline of evangelism and last Sunday night, service. Whereas this morning, it's fasting. And I wonder how you do feel about this. How do you react to the prospect of fasting? How often do you fast? How often do you fast? Why do you fast? Or maybe a better question, why do you not fast? How many people do you know who practice the spiritual discipline of fasting? What exactly do we mean when we talk about the spiritual discipline of fasting. We've got lots of questions, probably more with this discipline than with any of the others, maybe all of them combined. Last week, I I made the point that, and I made this both morning and evening, that virtually all the spiritual disciplines that we're looking at, all on that list, virtually all of them are counter-cultural, increasingly counter-cultural. To be silent, to practice Sabbath, to go out and share and show the love of Jesus with others. Deeply counter-cultural. Well, when it comes to fasting, in our society, this one is radically counter-cultural. But the question I want to ask this morning is this. For us as a church, okay, it's counter-cultural, radically counter-cultural in our society. But for us as a church, why is fasting one-off, if not the weakest and least practiced disciplines amongst Christians today. Why is that? Especially given that fasting is mentioned in Scripture more times than, say, something as vital as, for example, baptism. Fasting is mentioned far more times than baptism. Fasting is, it would seem, biblically important But the thing is, it's a tough discipline to talk about. It's tough for me to stand up here this morning and talk about it for all kinds of reasons. And often what happens when you do come to talk about this discipline is there are two extremes. Either you overemphasize this practice or you totally ignore it. John Wesley uh, put it like this. Some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason. However, others have utterly disregarded it. Let me be honest. I know which end of the spectrum I veer towards. And just as an aside, John Wesley, who founded Methodism, 
he apparently refused to ordain anyone to the Methodist ministry who would not, who did not fast twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, as we get into this, let's, let's define what we're actually talking about. What is fasting? What is the spiritual discipline of fasting? Well, here, here's a definition. Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. And when the Bible talks about this discipline, that is primarily what it is referring to. And that is what I'm going to focus on, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Abstinence from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. So this is not for dieting. This is not for weight loss. This is not for health benefits, okay? This is for spiritual purposes, and that makes all the difference in the world. But before we go any further, let me say something else that's really important. There are some people who for medical reasons are unable to, they cannot fast. It would be incredibly unwise for some people to fast because of a medical condition or for medical reasons. And if that is you, if that applies to you, I want you to bear that mind. I want you to take that on board. Although don't write off fasting as a spiritual discipline because you can still fast. You can still abstain from something other than food as a discipline and as part of this discipline. But for most of us, biblical fasting, which is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes for a certain period of time, that is the discipline that we're going to be talking about this morning. That, in a sense, is the challenge that lays before us. And it's a huge challenge, I want to guess. I'm saying that because, kind of speaking from my own circumstances. Now, as you engage with this this issue from Scripture, there's a couple of key insights that we, we need to put up front And the first is that there were and there are different kinds of fast, lots of different kinds of fast mentioned in the Bible. But the second thing I want to touch on is there were different people who did fast. So when it comes to kinds of fast, there was normal fasting, partial fasting, absolute fasting, supernatural fasting, private fasting, congregational fasting, national fasting. You can read about all those practices in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to deal with those all. I'm not going to define all of those. The kinds of fasting that we're concentrating on this morning that are relevant to us, I want to suggest, are these, normal and private. So what is normal fasting? Normal fasting is abstaining from all food, but not from water. That's what a normal fast is, abstaining from all food, but not from water for a specific period of time. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning, a normal fast. But it's also private in the sense that it is something we do Personally, we're not going to talk about congregational fasting. We're not going to talk about national fasting. We're going to talk about normal and private. Abstaining from food, but not water, for a specific period of time and something we choose personally to do. The second insight's about people. So that's about kinds of fast. Second, it's about people. Fasting featured in the lives of many kind of A-list characters in Scripture. So Moses fasted, David fasted, Elijah fasted, Esther fasted, Daniel fasted, Nehemiah fasted, Esther fasted, Anna fasted, the Apostle Paul fasted, and maybe most strikingly, Jesus fasted. And this is where, when it comes to Jesus, this is where the subject becomes powerfully relevant because one of the most critical things that I will say all morning, one of the most critical things that I must say as I stand up here about this spiritual discipline is that according to God's word, Jesus expected his followers to fast. 
According to God's word, Jesus expected and expects his followers to fast. In fact, he assumes they would and they will. If you turn to Matthew 6, you can if you want. If you turn to Matthew 6, I'm going to have the words on screen in a second anyway. But if you turn to Matthew 6, which is part of a sermon on the mount, that kind of body of teaching, that core body of teaching about what it means to live as kingdom people. When it comes to the section on fasting, and there is a little section on fasting in there. It runs from verses 16 in Matthew chapter 6 right through to 18. Well, here's how Jesus begins to teach on this subject. Here's how he speaks to his disciples about fasting. And we're all, we're all familiar with this. It begins, when you fast. That's how Jesus, when you fast. And he then goes on to make a comment about the practice. And then one verse later, verse 17, Jesus repeats the same phrase. But when you fast. And then he goes on to give further instructions. And therefore, fasting is clearly a practice that Jesus expected or assumed his followers would do. And this is even more obvious when we compare what Jesus says here with fasting with what he has said earlier about two other really important things, giving and prayer. So in verse two, as Jesus starts to talk about prayer, how does he begin? He says, so when you pray. And later on, he says, so when you give. And as we all know, and as we all accept, nobody doubts that Christians need to give and pray. And when we want to actually look at what that means and what that looks like, we often go to the Sermon on the Mount and we read the teaching of Jesus regarding giving and regarding prayer. That's where we find the Lord's Prayer, for example. But fasting, surely, therefore, should be no different. Just like giving, just like praying, this is something that would seem that Jesus expected and said, my followers need to do this. And nowhere in the rest of Scripture, nowhere in the rest of the New Testament is the teaching of Jesus reversed or are we told to ignore what had previously been said about this practice. And just to earth and kind of clarify this even further, there's a fascinating conversation that takes place later on in Matthew's gospel about this very discipline. It's Matthew chapter nine. And we read that Jesus has just called Matthew to follow him. And then Matthew invites Jesus to come back to his house for a meal. And some people are rather shocked at this. They're surprised because why is Jesus eating a meal with a tax collector? And a group of Pharisees, they're the religious leaders of the time, or some of the religious leaders of the time, they show up at this meal. And they question Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why are you eating, eating with, why are you associating with such a sinner? But there's another group who are equally confused about this practice. They're a group of disciples of John the Baptist. These were people who, like John, were actually pointing other people to Jesus. But they could not get their heads around the fact that here was Jesus and his disciples feasting while they were told they should often be fasting. And so they approached Jesus say, Jesus, what is going on? Here's their question. How is it that we, these are disciples of John the Baptist, people who are pointing people to Jesus, how is it that we, and they also say, and the Pharisees, why is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, Jesus, don't fast? And how does Jesus respond to the questioning? He says this. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, 
then they will fast. Jesus made it clear that a time would come when he would be taken from his disciples. We know that. But then he says, see when that time comes, whenever I go, I am the bridegroom of the bride is my church. Whenever I go, whenever I leave you, then you will fast. And therefore, because Jesus has left post-resurrection, because Jesus has left, because he has returned to be with his Father, that time of fasting, it would seem, is now. And has been ever since Jesus left. And will be until he returns again. When the bridegroom goes, then my disciples will fast. So back to Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus does that little teaching bit as part of it, what does Jesus actually say about the practice? What are some of his specific instructions? Well, in verses 16 to 18, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. I I recognize that. He doesn't say anything about how often his disciples should fast. Should it be once a week? Should it be once a month? Should it be once a year? Don't know. Jesus doesn't say. How long should they fast for? Again, don't know. But he does provide a negative command, a positive comment, and a very definite promise regarding when you do fast. And the negative comment that Jesus makes, and that's up there, the negative command, sorry, that Jesus effectively shares is this. Don't look miserable when you do it. Don't look miserable when you do it. Here's the positive comment. I want you to look normal when you fast. Because you see, it's not about other people. It's not about impressing other people. It's not about letting other people know what you're doing. When you fast, the only observer of your fast should be your Father in heaven. And here's the promise. When you fast, God will reward you. How will God reward you? Doesn't say. When will God reward you for fast? Doesn't say. But what is clear, what is guaranteed, is that God will reward you. So whatever else we make of this discipline, and despite our kind of niggling concerns and all the questions we have, maybe even fears we have, I hope that we can see, if nothing else, we can see this is a biblical practice. And Jesus expected and expects his followers to do it. So let's go back to our definition. And specifically the last three words, because as I say, fasting should be done and must be done for a purpose, for spiritual purposes. There's gotta be a faith-based reason for doing it. And so just like all the other disciplines, fasting's not an end in itself. I mean, there's lots of other groups and people who practice fasting as an end in itself. Fasting as a spiritual discipline is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. And so having a biblical and spiritual purpose is essential. Otherwise, it merely becomes an endurance test. It just becomes an exercise in self-will. And so when you fast, and I will come back to timing later, and I'm going to put out a challenge. When you fast, when the hunger kicks in, When the head aches a little bit and your stomach rumbles, you've got to be clear, you've got to remember, why is it I'm engaging in this discipline? Because it is those feelings, it is those hunger pangs, it is that discomfort that causes the mind to focus and serves as a constant reminder of the purpose of why you're doing it. And it is essential that we have a spiritual purpose in the way we do it. Any other purpose is not the spiritual discipline of fasting. There's got to be a purpose in it. 
So what are those purposes according to Scripture? Not, not me. What are, all those, what are some of those purposes according to Scripture? Well, there are many defined in Scripture, but for those who are reading the book by Donald Whitney, uh, the book that we've been reading together, and I understand Gordon has got some more copies of those available this morning, so not that many, first come, first serve, and all that. Uh, but he identifies in his chapter, I don't know many people have read his chapter on fasting, but he identifies 10 spiritual purposes for fasting. Now, I'm not going to share 10 with you. I'm only going to share five, because I'm lightweight. Okay, so the first purpose is this. Here's the first purpose, to strengthen prayer. If you're needing to pray about something, if you're needing to sharpen your focus in prayer, if something or someone is weighing heavily upon you, or even if you just need to pray full stop, because this in itself, prayer is a discipline that you've begun to neglect or avoid or whatever, then fasting and choosing to fast can be a catalyst to prompt and intensify your prayers and your praying. So we choose to fast in order to strengthen our prayer about a situation, about a person, about whatever's going on in our lives. John Calvin, not someone I quote very often, put it like this, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. There are a number of people in God's word who did exactly this. And so, for example, we read that Daniel devoted himself to pleading with God by prayer and with pleas of mercy with fasting. Nehemiah added fasting before the God of heaven because he recognized he needed help. He needed to come before God. He needed to pray. And so he said, I'm going to strengthen my prayer by also fasting at this time. And if you sense a need or a burden to pray for something or someone, and I know there are many of us here this morning whose hearts are heavy over someone, someone we love, someone in our family or whatever, if you're here this morning and you sense a need or a burden to pray about something, then fasting is one of the best friends you can introduce to your prayer life. And of all the purposes for fasting found in Scripture, doing it in order to strengthen prayer receives the most emphasis. But just one word of warning and caution. We don't add fasting to praying in order to impress God. Or to think, well, if I fast as well as I pray, then God will be really impressed. And therefore, the chances of my prayers being answered are increased. No, this is not about trying to twist God's arm. This is not about manipulating God. This is not about trying to earn God's approval in order to secure certain outcomes. If that is our reason for fasting, we're on thin ice. Fasting does not change or influence God's hearing of our prayers. Fasting does not change or influence God's hearing of our prayers. It does not earn divine brownie points. But you know what fasting does? It changes our praying. It changes us. It changes our praying. It strengthens it. It intensifies it. It empowers it. It increases it. And so if you recognize that you need to pray about something, if you recognize that your prayer life needs to be strengthened, then fasting is a great purpose or a great reason to engage with this discipline. Arthur Wallace, in his book, Chosen to Fast, he laments the fact that many Christians don't practice this God-given discipline. And therefore, he says, when, because they don't practice this God-given discipline, that they miss its ability to strengthen prayer. And so he says this, in giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. 
In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete. She's thrown it down in some dark corner to rust, and there it has lain forgotten for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. It's a strong quote, I know. But if you need to strengthen your praying, generally or specifically, then fast. Fast. Second purpose is connected to the first, and that is to seek guidance, to seek discernment and clarity regarding a decision or a direction you've got to take. There are, again, a number of examples in Scripture of this. In Acts chapter 14, we read that before Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the churches that they had founded, it says they first prayed with fasting to receive God's guidance. And so if you are needing to know what to do in a certain situation, what you should decide on, what you should choose, what direction you should take. Again, not as a a bargaining tool, but fasting is a good practice to choose if that is where you're at. If you're seeking guidance on anything from God, then fast and pray about that. Again, doesn't mean that you will receive clear guidance or direction, but it does make us more receptive to the one who guides us. Third purpose is to express grief and repentance regarding sin. There are times, and we've talked about this a lot, and I've stood up here and said a lot, there are times when we really do mess up as Christians. Christians still sin. We have ultimately been forgiven because of Jesus. But every single one of us who follows Jesus knows that in this past week, we have thought things, said things, done things that we regret. We know we're wrong. And a couple of weeks ago, we did look at the importance of the spiritual discipline of confession, but including fasting as part of your confession, as an expression of heartfelt grief because of your sin, that is entirely appropriate. It's biblical. It acts as a tangible signal of your commitment to obedience and a kind of new resolve regarding a particular thing. In Scripture, when people got it wrong and needed to repent for their sins, they did often fast. So, for example, 1 Samuel 7, the Israelites expressed their repentance. How did they express it? They did it through fasting. In Joel, God actually commanded his people to signify their repentance by fasting. And in Jonah, we read that whenever the people of Nineveh believed God, they called for a fast. And so if you're struggling with a particular sin or if you keep repeating a particular sin or if you struggle to confess your sin generally, then fasting to demonstrate your commitment and intention is a good purpose. It's a good reason to abstain from food for a specific period of time. Fourth, reasons to humble yourself before God. Do you know going without food for any length of time is hard. In our, in our kind of self-indulgent, denial-less, gluttonous culture, to deny yourself food, to go without food for any period of time, it's not a nice experience. It's uncomfortable. It's really inconvenient. And it hurts. But that in itself has the potential to remind us and increase our sense of dependency upon God. You see, when we fast, when we go without food, we do feel weak. And so without food, we do become weak. But you see, without God, we're in such trouble. 
And therefore, fasting is a humbling experience because it brings us back to the reality that my very existence depends on God who creates life, who sustains life, and the God who will ultimately take life. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the people of God came to a place in time where they thought, you know something, we can live without God. God has done so much for us and it's great, but we can go on our own from here. We can live our own way. And as a result, it says in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God decided to humble them. And the way that God chose to humble them was to letting them go hungry. As a vivid reminder of their need of God and utter dependence upon him. And fasting for us is a voluntary physical expression of humility where I choose to go hungry every now and again as a kind of wake-up call to my reliance upon God. It's a spiritual discipline that prompts me to refocus, to regain perspective, to realign my life to God. And if you ever sense or reckon you're becoming increasingly self-reliant or self-centered, that you don't actually really need God, that you've become quite independent, or if you simply need to humble yourself before God, because one of the real strong themes of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, is the need to humble ourselves, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you hear that and know that you need to humble yourself, then fasting for that spiritual purpose is entirely fitting and worth doing. The fifth and final purpose for fasting is to overcome temptation and to kind of dedicate yourself afresh to God's word in particular. Jesus fasted, we know this, and at the end of his first recorded fast, and yes, Jesus' first recorded fast was lengthy, but at the end of that particular fast, Jesus overcame extreme temptation. Extreme temptation. And so the enemy clearly thought that because Jesus has fasted for such a long time, he's bound to be weak. He's bound to be vulnerable. Now he is surely ripe to cave in under temptation. And yet it appears that Jesus was in fact spiritually strong at that point and was able to deal with the onslaught of temptation. Now there's obviously lots going on in that dramatic post-baptism incident, I know that. There's more going on in that incident about the identity and exactly who Jesus is. But in terms of fasting, we discover here is one way modeled by Jesus of overcoming temptation in our own lives. That if we find ourselves confronting it, struggling with it, under pressure from it, then fasting may be a discipline to practice in dealing with temptation. The response of Jesus to the enemy's first temptation, so well known. He says, man, so Jesus responds to the enemy, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And this is a phrase that Jesus has lifted directly from the Torah, directly from the books of the, the first five books of the Old Testament, actually Deuteronomy yet again. And what Jesus is saying to the enemy, yes, physical food is important, but man doesn't live and Jesus was fully human, remember. Man doesn't live on bread alone. Physical food is important, but spiritual nourishment is essential. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's really interesting to parallel this 
temptation incident in the wilderness involving Jesus with the one that occurred right back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Because you see, the devil tempted Adam and Eve at a time when they were surrounded by food, when their stomachs were full. And they gave in. They gave in, they buckled. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted when his stomach is empty and he overcomes. And it prompts this question, who understands, really understands that we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Is it the man with his belly full or the man with his belly empty? And years ago, whenever we looked at holy habits and we touched on this discipline, I used this rather provocative quote. If you never fast, then the whole concept of being wholly nourished and sustained by God's word alone will likely be only a nice, sweet, and totally irrelevant idea to you. And worse, if you never fast, when the days of tempting and testing come, you may not stand. Again, it's a strong quote, but it's a challenging one. Fasting for overcoming temptation may be a life-saving, a faith-saving option for some of us. And fasting to remind ourselves, yeah, do you know, I need this. I need to live on this. I need to eat this. I need to consume this. I need to take this into my spiritual bloodstream. Because I don't live on physical food alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, five spiritual purposes for fasting. But as I do bring this to a close, what about timing? What about timing? How long should we fast for? Well, in his teaching on the subject, as I've already mentioned, Jesus doesn't deal with it. But in the Bible, there are lots of different time frames when it comes to fasting. So there's fasting for a day. There's fasting for part of the day. We read of a one-night fast, a three-day fast, a seven-day fast, a 14-day fast, a 21-day fast, a 40-day fast like that of Jesus. Plus, we also read even of unspecified lengths of time of fasting. And so in terms of timing, in terms of how long for, that's up to us as led by the Holy Spirit. Bearing in mind those medical and health issues I said are strictly speaking, abstinence from one meal for spiritual purposes constitutes a fast, but for most people, a one-day fast, a 24-hour fast, a fast of two meals or maybe three meals is a discipline that needs to be considered from time to time. As I say, once a year, once a quarter, once a month, once a week. And so if you've never fasted, or you haven't fasted for quite some time, then I hope and pray you may consider introducing it or reintroducing it as a spiritual discipline for spiritual purposes. Remembering, God will reward you. When? How? No idea. So if you need to strengthen your praying, if you need guidance, you need to express grief. You need to be humbled. If you're struggling with temptation, then can I encourage you this week to choose to fast? 